Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. If you're like me, quarantined, locked up, <laughs> not locked up, but that's what it feels like, right? Um, There's it, it, so many challenges and, and obstacles. I have received so many messages from people feeling like a burden, uh, feeling like they're isolated, to feeling hopeless. Uh, However, if you go to thrivewithleo.com, I can coach you from feeling like a burden to feeling like a blessing, from feeling isolated to feeling connected, from feeling hopeless to feeling hopeful. Go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching, and we will get through this together. With that said, Let's get into the episode. Hi, Alex. Hi, how are you? Fantastic. We have to pretend like we didn't just have a a five-minute conversation before this. (laughs) (laughs) I can do that. That's perfectly fine. Alex Thompson, I'm so excited to have you on today uh, because you have uh, such uh, a high ambition, uh, without (laughs) lack of a better uh, word, I was just watching Self Made with a, a story about Madam C.J. Walker, the mm-hmm. first, uh, the, on, on, at least on record, the first female uh, millionaire in America, in the country. And, and, and you know, watching mm-hmm. her and her ambition and, and wanting to be global. Um, and then I, I read your mission statement and your purpose of wanting to have uh, therapy sessions and bringing counseling into every church, uh, I think across the world. But across yes. the country, right across the world, yes. And, yes. and what an ambition uh, to 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 want to do that, but uh, a needed a needed um, uh, service that mm-hmm. all that that should be in in every church, and so that we all have access to it. Can you talk to us about that and and what the root of that was? Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, to hear, I have actually had people say to me, your dream scares me um, because it is so big and so fa- so vast. So I totally get that, that it's one of those dreams, one of those ambitions. People are a little bit like, uh, I don't know. That's really big, you know, but I, I just truly, fully and completely believe that our mental health is the foundation of how we view everything. It's how we view ourselves. It's how we view our family of origin. It's how we view people around us. It's how we view and relate to God. Um, so the, so I truly believe that if the church really wants to be relevant and really wants to learn better how to respond to pain and not just in a, you know, dismissive or shaming kind of way, like we possibly have been historically, I think offering clinical therapy from within the walls of their church is a great way of starting that, um, saying, Hey, listen, like we, we care about the, even the very foundational level of who you are. And we want to treat that. We want to meet you where you are. We want to speak into that. And we don't just want to do it haphazardly. We want to actually bring in trained professionals to be able to offer clinical care for our community and for our church community. Alex, Beautifully said, and I, I'm applauding the effort. I'm so on board with this. Uh, <laughs> of course, this brings the question. Uh, one, th- one of the things I love that you said, first of all, is you said, uh, you know, to address 
how to respond to pain because so many people mm-hmm. are in pain and mm-hmm. the as as amazing as the church is and I, you know this is any church any religious institution mm. um uh they they all have different ways of responding to pain but like mm. you said there there's that way the the religious way uh but then there's also the the therapeutic way and there and there's also the science the 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 scientific way, the way that have been proven through science and experiences and, and antidotes and, and, and a long history of, of, of responding to pain. And, and although, you know, therapy is, uh, is, is still young, it's still very much in its infancy. It's, it's come so far. My question to you is, mm-hmm. uh, it, this makes me feel like you've had an experience, uh, either with, uh, counseling and <laughs> therapy or church and, you were like, these two need to be together. There was something missing. Uh, can you yeah. talk to us about that? Like, what's the backstory for this? Oh, I would love. Oh, gosh, the backstory. There's so much of a backstory. But um, to keep it as brief as I can, I'll kind of share my story just a little bit. So um, I got married very young and have always been the kind of person who I just like, I need the education. I need to have a job. I need to support my little tiny family at the time, just me and my husband. Um, and I just need to do what I can, um, in my calling. And it wasn't always therapy. Um, but I did over the course of that time, figure out that, wow, that is really what I am designed to do, which is, um, walk gently next to people who are hurting and up and speak into all. Um, but when we, so we, my husband and I got married very young. We put each other through four years of school just after getting married and then decided to go and be irresponsible and move to New York city, um, to kind of go and try that out. So we moved to New York city, both working in our, um, in our field. And that's when I was working, um, in uh, play therapy, working for charter schools and stuff throughout the Bronx and, and in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And it was a fantastic experience. I loved it so much. But my husband got a job back here at Home Depot. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. So Home Depot headquarters is in is like five minutes from our house now. Um, and that is a company that he admired for a long time. And so when he was offered that job, he was like, you know, that's it. We, we got to take it. Um, so I, being that kind of person that always, you know, wanted to have a job. It didn't really matter even at that time what it was, but I had to have a job in my field supporting us. So, um, a job that I found very quickly was through Emory, um, school of medicine in their department of psychiatry, where basically all I was doing was diagnosing, um, to, to see if people could be a part of our certain research study, the one that I managed at that time. So I was diagnosing and really sharpening my, my clinical skills. Um, but at that time I wasn't as a diagnostician, I wasn't actually doing like what I, what I say is my heart's work, which is therapy. I wasn't really doing therapy. I moved from New York city where I was doing intense, um, trauma play therapy with kids and absolutely adoring it to just diagnosing, um, in a very, um, like black and white kind of than not doing therapy. So I reached out to our new church at the time and I said, Hey, this is, you know, you, you don't hardly know me. Um, but this is who I am. This is what I do. I currently am diagnosing. I'm, I, but what I would love to do is offer up a couple of hours a week to volunteer as a therapist for your church. Is that something that you guys 
have room for or have any need for. And they, they almost like chuckle, like, yes, um, here are, you know, four right now. So I went from, you know, working full time at Emory to having four volunteer clients. And I quickly put like a little intake form together, a little informed consent form together. But I just sat in a room with a table um, across from an individual client or a married couple client. And we just kind of grassroots, like started our little thing there. And it grew so quickly. And I have a memory of, um, the pastor, the lead pastor and me kind of passing like ships in the night. I think I was coming in for evening sessions and he was leaving to go home for the day. And he stopped me in the doorway and he said, I'll call him John as if John was my um, my, the husband in the couple, he said, I was on the phone with John earlier today and he told me you saved his life. And he was not kidding. He was not smiling. He was like looking, looking at me like daggers. Like he told me that you saved his life. And I, I think it even like catches in my throat now to think of that memory. And I think in the moment it caught in my throat. And of course I knew that I did not save his life. The Lord did that. But his life was saved because a church said, hey, somebody is reaching out, wants to do this. We need it. Let's make room. Let's make it happen. A professional who's clinically trained, who knows what she's doing, who can get to unlock some of those um, you know, mysterious areas that no one else has been able to speak to, speak into up until this point in, in their life. This was a couple, I mean, the stress was so intense that, that she was having stress-induced strokes and things like that. But to hear the pastor say that, I mean, sharp say, he said that you saved his life. I think that's what opened that door to like, holy cow, this is what the church is missing and this is what the church so desperately needs. Um, and so I was still, it was probably another several months that I was working for Emory and really not loving it because I, I am a therapist. I am not a diagnostician. We have to, it intersects, but I want to do therapy. That's my heart's calling. And I believe my giftedness through the spirit. But um, it, it, I got like a random text from one of the pastors several months later, and I was so uncomfortable at Emory that he texted like, hey, when you get a second, can you call me? Um, and I responded and said, sure, but is this by any chance, you know, because you want me to start a clinical practice in your church? <laughs> and he's like laughed, you know, I could imagine him laughing, but he said, haha, no, but let's talk about that. And I think it was another six months or so after that. And we, um, formed a clinical practice through them just totally trusting me to be able to make that happen for our church and for our surrounding community. Amazing story, Alex. Uh, that was a lot of info, wasn't it? <laughs> a, a, a lot of info, but great, you know, such a powerful story. I mean, first of all, the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that um, strokes can be and are stress-induced. Uh, yeah, for absolutely. some people, I have a friend who had a stress, uh, induced stroke. And yeah. I, I think stress is one of those things that, uh, we kind of laugh about and joke about. I'm stressed, but we, we definitely want to take, uh, stressors and, uh, very seriously because it could lead to so many medical, uh, conditions. Uh, but you know, mm -hmm. strokes being one, uh, but Absolutely. I want to go back a little bit. I, I, there's two things I want to cover. Uh, but first, I want to talk about, you know, the, you saved his life. Can you talk to us about, you know, just generally speaking, what he uh, was struggling with? And then 
what was your methodology? What were your techniques and strategies for, for, for walking them back, you know, off the ledge, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a hard question, honestly, because it has been so long since I met with them. I mean, the, um, the Cumberland Counseling Center is three years old now. We're about to celebrate four years in October and they were this little couple. They were like my very first people that I ever met with. I haven't met with them in a long time. Um, and I, I'm nervous to give too much information because it could be identifiable. Um, if anybody were to know that part of my story and, you know, if they happened to, I, I, so I do feel a little bit like I shouldn't give too much information about what it was, but I will say that within their marriage, there was something going on, um, that was making it, there was a question of identity, if that makes sense within the marriage and, um, some, some acting out in this understanding of a completely different identity than what they originally agreed to when they got married. Um, and so acting out in this identity was leading to, Oh my gosh, who, who the heck are we? Um, and should we have ever gotten married and what does this mean? And we have all these kids and we all, you know, we already are financially, you know, constrained and things like that. And am I going to have to, like, if if our marriage falls apart because of this, am I going to be able to survive with all these kids on my own now, you know, with, with us living in this new identity? that makes sense. Um, and so it was a lot of just processing what was true for them and what was, uh, maybe being perceived incorrectly as truth that wasn't true, if that made sense. So, um, there was certainly some, um, CBT that was used cognitive behavioral therapy, which has a lot to do with, um, let's talk about when this happens or when this is perceived or whatever might be going on, what we initially are feeling in that moment. So maybe I'm feeling rejection. Maybe I'm feeling inferior. Maybe I'm feeling abandoned or emotionally abandoned. And when those feelings are coming on, what thoughts are jumping into your mind? Um, I'm believing that that uh, they're going to leave me. I'm believing that I'm not going to be able to make it on my own. I'm believing that God doesn't love me, that he made a mistake, you know, things like that. Um, and then there's like a, a, an extra little thing when, when the couple or when a client wants to bring in, um, spirituality into their session, they always have to be the one to bring that in. We can't force that on anybody, but when they, when we're kind of all in agreement that that is, um, the right way to go for the session, then we can add in that extra, well, what does truth say about who you are, about how you were designed, about what, um, what marriage is intended for and what we can grow out of marriage, things like that. Um, what is true about your worthiness of your value of his worthiness of his value of his creation, you know, all of that. Um, and then how can we in these different, you know, uncomfortable times where these things might be coming up again, how can we go back to what is actually true about you? What is actually true about him and stand firm on that with also some, um, emotionally focused therapy, which is really just like, um, when you hear this or when this comes up, what is it that you're feeling? And then giving the, uh, the couple, the opportunity to speak directly to each other, what I'm feeling, what thought this brought up, you know, um, 
what my fear is, things like that. Does that kind of speak to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. a lot of times when uh, we, we are in a, in a great deal of pain and we are struggling with our identity or there's been a, a transition or uh, perceptions have um, uh, been, re- I don't want to say been revealed, but we, when we get to the truth of what mm-hmm. something is, um, it is important to delve into what are the feelings that come up now that this is the truth, right? It's, uh, yeah. I think a lot of times we fight what the truth is and we're so focused on what we want things to be or what things were um, that it, we have to focus on what is right now currently taking place. And, Absolutely. And then, how, you know, what are we feeling about it? What are the thoughts and fears that come up with that? Um, and, and then, like you said, to, to, to proceed from there. Um, when, can it, let's go back just a little bit more to uh, play therapy. And yeah. the reason why I want to discuss play therapy a little bit is because <laughs> so many people are quarantined at home with their kids. Mm-hmm. And they are running out of things to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, just briefly, what when you t- when you say play therapy, what does that look like, and what is it used for? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, I wouldn't say that play therapy is something that just anyone should do and then call it therapy. But essentially, what it is um, with little kids is giving little kids an opportunity to express themselves without using clear language about what happened, how that made them feel, and then how they're processing it. Um, so like if, if, if I'm, if I have a client who's five or six, uh, come in for a session with me, she's not going to, or he is not going to sit in the, on a couch across from me and I'm not going to ask them, you know, and when that happened, how did that make you feel? Or what were you believing at the time? Cause they're not verbal enough. They, they can't get there, but what they, absolutely can do when presented with opportunities to do it is, um, sit in front of a therapist, the therapist just, um, quietly observing a client, maybe digging in a bucket of sand where there's lots of different toys that they were able to choose, um, from a whole, you know, uh, section of, of different toys. So they get to kind of walk through the room and, say, I want this and I want the dinosaur and I want the bear and I want the princess and I want, you know, okay, wonderful. Now let's bring all of your toys, all those things. Let's, um, dip them into the sand and see what kind of world that we can create when you're playing with them in the sand. What do they say? How do they interact with each other? What do they do? Are they together? Are they separate? So you're kind of like leading and guiding, but, but you're essentially just observing them playing completely on their own, using their own imagination. And if any, the reason it's therapeutic is if any, um, uh, trauma or anything like that has happened, a lot of times that gives them the opportunity to safely reenact it or to safely process it where the therapist can see, um, what it is that they're, uh, has been kind of stuck in their mind or in their, nervous system, perhaps that they need to, uh, kind of work out. And then that can be processed through the therapist and then, um, you know, safely brought into conversation with the family. You know, this is something that is kind of a continuous theme, things like that. So, uh, so I wouldn't say that during this time of quarantine that, uh, people should be doing play therapy because, um, 
you know, there could be certain situations come up and it doesn't mean that somebody has been traumatized or, or something like that. And so there is, um, you know, specific things that you need to be trained to look for and, and to do. Um, but certainly what this time of quarantine, you know, what, what we could do is offer different sensory things that they can play with, like sand or like, um, I think it's called kinesthetic sand, the sand that kind of falls apart in your hands. Um, or the, uh, the little like gooey balls that if left out in the air, they, they get really, really tiny and they harden up, um, some beans, you know, you can take a tub and fill it with beans or fill it with rice or other just sensory things and give them the opportunity to play through these sensory items. Um, and then you could even get a bucket and fill it with sand and, um, and have them bring in, you know, their toys and just kind of like play in the sand and dig through the sand and things like that and just see if anything comes up. Um, and you can even play right along with them, giving them the opportunity to lead and guide, um, exactly what the theme is. So the parent, uh, and especially the therapist, but the parent (coughs) or guardian in this situation wouldn't be like, no, no, I think we're on a beach, you know, no, no, I think actually we should play, uh, if you're going to have Barbie, then I need to have Ken too. It's all that the, uh, child is really leading and guiding what, what is kind of needing to come out of their own brain and their own imagination. You know, uh, uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, and you're absolutely right. Like play therapy. And I would imagine that's not something just for kids. I know some uh, like adult coloring books. You are so right. Mm-hmm. Are just <clears throat> flying off the shelves right now. Yeah. What would that look like uh, for adults? You know, adults aren't going to play with Play-Doh maybe or kinesthetic sand. But uh, how would that transfer over into uh, adults and, and quote unquote play therapy? Oh, that I love that. That's such a like sweet and innocent question almost in my mind. You're right. There's, um, there's adult coloring books, but what that kind of snapped my mind into is this concept of our inner child. Um, I have found over and over and over again with my clients and my, my adult clients, um, that more than anything, we just want to be held And I'm not talking about by me, the therapist in session, I'm not holding anyone in session, but we want to be in such a safe and intimate environment and, and relationship that we feel figuratively held. Maybe it's just that space is held, um, but that their inner child, this need to be held, this need to be loved this need to be seen when they're crying and not trying, not tried to, um, get them to stop crying or get them to see the big picture or get them to snap into gratitude or not trying to change them at all, but just give their inner child an opportunity to say that wasn't fair or that hurt my feelings or, you know, I just need you to see me. I need you to love me. Like I just kind of snapped into that idea that absolutely every single person needs an opportunity to play and be free. Um, and I think that's a lot of times what the, um, adult coloring books can do most more, more than anything. It's a mindfulness exercise, the adult coloring books, because it's pretty and you can, um, you can stay focused and you can keep your, like your mind can either wander or your mind can stay perfectly focused on what you're doing. Um, but it is kind of a childlike thing that we're doing. And we 
are every age we've ever been. I'm 32 years old, but I'm also still my 11 year old. I'm still my 15 year old. I'm still my little girl, even though I'm 32. And so sitting down and being able to color something while I'm doing a mindfulness activity, but also like, you know, color blonde hair on this princess because I was, I had blonde hair when I was little or, um, you know, draw a rainbow because that's what I always drew over and over and over again when I was a little girl kind of snaps me back into loving myself now and also loving myself as that, you know, seven or eight year old too. I I don't know if that answered that in any way for you, but that's kind of where my mind went when we talked about, um, play therapy for adults. No, that absolutely makes sense. When, when I, uh, you know, a therapist I had long ago, uh, when I went for couples therapy, she, she was, she mentioned how when someone's bringing up emotions, how important it is for the other person to hold space Yes. for that person to feel all the things and how important it is for me to hold space. Because like you said, so many times when uh, a lot of emotions are displayed, we uh-huh. immediately want to get the fire extinguisher and put it out and, and end it or, or just say, you know, you shouldn't feel those emotions um, and... It's and as you get older, you realize like in a relationship, it, it doesn't work. Um, I mean, it, it never works, but especially right. it, it rears its head in in adult relationships when yeah. one person's having feelings about something and the other person doesn't know how to hold space. Can you talk about how to hold space? Because that it's it's it seems so uh, vague right now. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, holding space is something that I say a lot. Um, More than anything, I think what is so therapeutic is the opportunity to have space held for you. Brene Brown puts it as um, not having to hustle in any way to be uh, be liked or to be cared for. I I totally butchered that, but she talks about... um, real intimate relationships being ones where you don't have to hustle in any kind of way. Um, and so that therapeutic relationship that's formed is with somebody sitting across from you, just holding space for you to be able to be whoever you are with no judgment in that session to, um, have experienced a situation or experienced life in whatever way that you did and even validate that for you, um, to sit and, uh, even just be still as you're, as you're weeping perhaps. Um, and, and maybe like quietly, you know, keep eye contact if that seems, uh, appropriate for the moment, but not trying to, you know, rub the shoulder or do the, they're there kind of thing. They're there. It'll get better. It'll get better. You know, because what that is actually, is a display of the, um, the per, I guess in that situation would have been the therapist, the therapist, uh, needing to be in control of the other person's emotions or emotional state at that time. So literally holding space for someone is just being able to be quiet and let that person express and experience the situation or, uh, the conversation or whatever is happening in, in however they need to, not trying to control or, or change what's going on, but just kind of nodding along or uh, maintaining eye 
eye contact or, or doing the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I'm with you. I, I hear you. I get it. You know, uh, kind of language with them. Um, yeah, but holding space is more than anything. It's just, um, not trying to control the person to have a different kind of experience than what they're currently experiencing. You know, I will, I'll give a little example to a personal one. Actually, I, uh, my husband and I struggled with infertility for three years and we have a son now and he's absolute magic. Um, and we adopted him. He's just absolutely perfect in our eyes. Um, but for three years we, we struggled with that and we were told no over and over and over again. And they can't really figure out what is causing the infertility. But the last like major doctor appointment I had, they basically said, we don't know why, but we don't believe you're ever going to be able to get pregnant except for possibly with IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. Um, and so that to me felt like a big thing to hear. Um, okay. I, I, my body can't get pregnant. We don't know why. Uh, and it'll be $20,000 for us to, to just possibly like to try IVF, but it doesn't mean it will definitely lead to a baby. Um, and so I was taking all that in and had a conversation with my, my sweet, sister who's like one of the strongest women I know. And who's one of those like chin up girl, you'll get through this. You've gotten through hard things. Her family has been through hard things. You can do this too. You know, like that's the big sister that she is to me. But during that conversation that I had after that doctor's appointment, I called her and what I really, I guess, wanted was a big sister that I could lead my head on. And really what I wanted was a therapist out of my sister. So I think I was inappropriately putting her in a role that she couldn't be in. But I shared all that information with her and I started crying. And my sister, uh, in my moment of tears, her response to me was, um, you know, Alex, I don't think you should be upset about that because what you're hearing, uh, is that there is a possibility that you can get pregnant. I think you need to be grateful for that. You know, there, and then I think I was I was so, um, caught up with that, that I just got kind of quiet and didn't, I literally couldn't think of any words to say. So she kind of started to backtrack a little bit. And finally, when I got to my feeling in that moment of what just happened, I was able to say to her, I don't think you should ever tell someone that they shouldn't be grieving when they're grieving. Um, and, and then, you know, that's when she kind of realized what happened, but Uh, And then I was able to say, I think also what I needed was a therapist in that moment. And that wasn't you. You're my big empowering sister, you know, and we kind of apologized. But that's what that doesn't look like. Holding space doesn't look like when someone's crying in front of you or when somebody is, you know, um, weeping or hurting, like expressing tremendous hurt in a moment and clearly needing to um, have a safe conversation about it with someone that they deem safe, Uh, And then for that person to say, there's no reason you should be having this reaction. That is not safe. And it actually leads that person maybe even to believe that in the future, they can't have those kind of conversations um, because they aren't going to be validated, you know? Um, So the opposite of that holding space would have been um, if I was in a, in a more appropriate um, situation at the time, maybe reached out to my counselor or something like that would have been, I, I can see that you're crying. I can see that this is really hard for you. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that news. You, I'm here for you. If you 
you know, want me to go to a doctor's appointment with you next time or whatever you need, you just let me know. But yeah, I can see, I can hear this is really hard for you. That is what holding space looks like. It's, it comes down to validation, right? Absolutely. And, and, and taking, removing yourself out of it and, and really seeing the person, uh, what they're going through and yeah. what they're feeling. Cause I think for some people, because we uh, we don't really talk in terms of feelings. We always talk in terms of doing. Like, mm-hmm. what you do today? I did this. I did. You know, this is what I did over the weekend. But nobody talks right. about how they felt about what they right. did over the weekend. And yeah. so I, I think then when we get into uh, arguments or uh, there's an emotional uh, uh, conversation, we don't know how to. Uh, verbalize that. But one of the things I like about what you're saying is it doesn't, you just don't have to tap into the emotion. You could tap into what you're seeing physically. I see that you're crying. I see, you know, that, that you're grieving. I, you know, it's like, what, what are you seeing? I I, I see that there's, you know, I remember um, in a past relationship and I actually, I've said this in this relationship, but, um, but not too often, but there are moments where I'll say, uh, it, 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 it feels like there's space between us. Mm. And, and that's kind of my way of saying, I don't feel connected. Um, I don't, and I, I'm also saying, I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, I'm trying to sort through it, but I'm trying to be present. And, um, you know, I, I want to communicate that I, I don't feel connected. I'm not, I'm not putting it on you. I'm not putting it on me. There's something about us where I'm like, um, wow, there's space between us. Or sometimes uh, something to be said. And I said, you know, what you just said put space between us. I'll mm. say it like that. And so, and I, I bring it up because you're mm-hmm. talking about holding space, but it's also valuable to be able mm-hmm. to communicate when uh, space, too much space is created. <laughs> yeah, or maybe, or maybe when space hasn't been held. Oh, right, you know, if, right. if, uh, if you're explaining, I'm just kind of writing my own narrative here, but if you're explaining something and your partner says something that then puts space between you, what that really means is something just happened that didn't feel safe to me. Um, I thought we were going in one direction maybe and... Uh, and, and there wasn't space held for that. Uh, and it was taken in a different direction. And I'm not sure I understand where we went or I'm not certain that I'm safe in where you're going. What, um, first of all, um, you know, I, I, so I feel like so many women are struggling with infertility. Hmm. Uh, it seems to be, uh, uh, when I look at the stats, it seems to be a number that's going up. Uh, and, and not to get into some mm. conspiracy theories, but part of <laughs> part of what I believe is attributed to it is the amount of foods that we are consuming that are without seeds. Hmm. There are, if you think about the amount of, I can't, how hard it is to find grapes with seeds, uh, <laughs> watermelons, like there's so many foods that we used to eat that that naturally come with seeds that are now being removed. And yeah. when you when you think about um, the what we're really trying to grow, I mean, fer- fertility is a seed within the body. And if we're consuming foods that are seedless, I, I feel like there has to be some type of uh, some type of connection there. Not to go too crazy, <laughs> but you sound excited, though. 
Yeah. Well, just cause I've never, I've never thought about that, but I, I think what you're speaking to that I have thought about is how just how we're eating food that is so changed from its original form now. And, and a, the majority of what we're eating isn't real anymore. It's not real. You know, it's made with all these different kind of byproducts and things like that. Uh, and I've certainly thought about that. In fact, I've, um, I've joked a little bit that I probably ate, you know, too much packaged turkey meat, or I put too many things in the microwave or something when I was <laughs> growing up in the nineties. And I don't know if that's really true, um, because it, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any research on that or anything, but I can't help, but, and I'm sure all of us, we can't help, but let our minds wander into those areas. Like what have we been putting in our body that, uh, possibly is ca- causing this kind of damage for sure. I just hadn't thought about the seed thing. That's you're right. I, uh, watermelons and <laughs> everything that has a seed, they are trying to, you know, figure out how to get rid of that. I, seed. I only bring it up <laughs> cause I love grapes and, and grapes with <laughs> seeds t- taste 10 times better with the seed mm. versus, uh, grapes without the seeds. It's, Good to know. Uh, my mom is from Belize and we had, we had grape trees in the backyard. Oh. And uh, so I'm like, oh, I know what real grapes taste like. It's like yeah. if you had real sushi, then you go to 7-Eleven. No. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you grew up with grape trees. I love that. I wish I grew up with grape trees. Where, where, where are you from? I am from Atlanta and that's where I am now. Okay. Um, my dad's family's from Iceland, My, um, but they grew up and lived in, in the Bronx you know, for many, many years. And my mom is like literally from Georgia, like her family's native American, Georgia. <laughs> wow. You, yeah. you know, uh, to, to go, to get back on track here, the, the value and the importance of what you're doing in terms of bridging, uh, not, I want to say mental health, but, uh, counseling therapy with, with church is so valuable. Mm-hmm. I talk about because uh, I do stand up, and in my stand up, I do talk about mental health issues, and I've struggled, and I talk about my struggle with suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was, uh, I did a show in Vegas, and I was, I was, I really, I really went into it, and I really talked about it. And it was, it was a funny show, and it was a great show, even so much so that afterwards, people lined up after the show to give me a hug, Aww. and not, and not even a hug me to make me feel better. Because it brought up things for them that they yeah. had been struggling with yeah. communicating. And, yeah. and grown men. And, yeah. and, and I bring it up because I remember one of them was a pastor. He's like, I'm a pastor in a church. I've just lost. Mm-hmm. He had just lost like two people uh, that are very close to mm-hmm. him. And he was struggling with his mm-hmm. emotions and feelings. around. He had tears in his eyes. Uh, and I just remember it was, it was like the, it was the longest hug and embrace. Mm. And I was like, if a, if a pastor yeah. uh, is coming to me with tears in his eyes and holding me and thanking me for sharing mm-hmm. my story, uh, mm-hmm. how many more pastors are, are struggling with this and don't know how to communicate it or don't feel like they have a place to go to and how many members of the congregation are, you know, if this is the head of the congregation, that means that it has to be tenfold within the congregation. Um, yeah. I don't know if that brings up any any thoughts or, or stories for you. 
Yeah. The word that came to mind was, uh, yeah, bingo. Exactly. Um, First of all, I read that you do stand up. And I absolutely cannot wait to watch your stand up because that's, I think that's probably my biggest hobby is, um, going to watch comedians. So I can't wait to find you and, and go and watch your stuff. Cause I'm sure you're, you're great, especially if you're in Vegas for crying out loud. Jeez. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have family in Atlanta and I, I've done some shows out there. So, I, you know, once all this, uh, all these shenanigans are over, uh, I'll be back out there. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. We'll I'll have to keep track sure. of you. Yeah, I'll have to keep track and come see you for sure. I'd love that. Um, but, but yeah, in fact, when you were saying that, when you're saying people were lining up to give me a hug, I, I, I feel like I knew immediately that what you meant was that they needed a hug from you, the person who just spoke into their heart in such a intimate way. Um, not that they felt that they needed to give you a hug because of what you've been through. Um, and the reason I, I think my mind went there is because I lead a lot of, um, classes and trainings and things on, uh, the intersection of mental health and church. And what I mean by that is like, I call it, um, faith and mental wellness. Usually when I do these classes, because, uh, I believe that so much of what we generally talk about or know about mental health in the church has been so skewed. Um, and we're actually speaking things that are more harmful than it is healing. Uh, and so when I deliver these trainings, which incorporate um, what scripture says about mental health and things like that, more often than not, I get people lining up at the end to come and tell me their personal stories. And these are usually very interactive classes. So people give uh, you know a lot of stories during the class you know, as it is, but they'll come up at the end because they want to, like you said, like they, they want to breathe out loud in front of someone who they feel has just validated them with what they've said. And I've had so many people say, this was such a, a, um, a breath of fresh air. I needed this because it's not generally what I hear in the church. And it's not generally, um, you know, what we've been taught. Um, so I, I totally get that. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, any pastor who is pastoring a church well, like well, meaning that they're actually hearing about people's pain and actually hearing about their, uh, trauma and their wounds and things like that, because they have that kind of shepherding relationship. Uh, there is very, like, I almost want to say there's no way that a pastor is not going to be emotionally impact impacted by the work that they're doing. It's kind of like saying a therapist, there is no way that a therapist will never need to be in counseling at some point because of the, um, incredible like depth and weight of what it is that they're carrying day in and day out, just doing their jobs. I believe the same is true of pastors as well. Um, and so the more we can make therapy and, uh, speaking of our mental health and making sure that our mental health is seen as exactly the same as our physical health. Um, and speaking of those things from the pulpit and speaking of those things, um, in an honest and truthful way to our pastors, that they are not anything less than for being emotionally impacted or having, you know, uh, mental health issues because of the weight of the work that they're taking on in people's lives. Um, and that therapy is just as important as going to the dentist. You know, I've been saying that recently, like 
in order to keep your teeth clean and to um, not, you know, in order to prevent bigger problems later, you go to specifically a dentist. You don't go to a pastor. You don't open your Bible necessarily for that. You go to a dentist because they have been trained in exactly how to take care of the mouth, of how to take care of teeth. Um, If you have been diagnosed with cancer um, and you need to, you know, like, and this is something that could take your life, you probably more often than not need to meet with an oncologist and you need to follow what they're saying is best for your body right now. And if you have diabetes, you need this. And if you have a migraine headache, you take this, you know. Um, it doesn't mean that you do for the rest of your life, but there are certain times when we need to meet with the right, um, professionally trained people, because that could be who God has put in your path to take the best care of you because he loves you, you know, and he knows that you don't have all knowledge like he does. And sometimes you need to meet with somebody who has a different kind of knowledge in this particular field, knowledge that you don't necessarily have, you see. Yeah, a lot of us feel like, you know, we need to go at it alone. Um, and, and you know, that's part of the conditioning of, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and yeah. uh, everybody wants to appear like they have it together. Right. Um, and I want to tie that into, because you said something that I, I it just resonated with me um, because of this, like you talked about like your sister and her being a strong woman. Yeah. And... I remember growing up, you know, like as a, the message as a guy was you always wanted to be strong. You know, you always had to and you had to prove your strength. And it was through speed or push-ups or uh, arm yeah. wrestling. And yeah. we spend so much of our, our childhood as, as men trying to prove that we're strong. And, and now when I look at, at the media um, and magazine covers and, and television, uh, it seems like now it's it, women have that um, – burden to bear of of being a strong independent woman and 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 i'm fascinated by that because you know we never say oh you know i, I lean on my friend because they're they're very vulnerable mm-hmm. and and I, I think it's um you know like going back to brene brown she talks about there's no way you can be courageous and without at being the, vulnerable, vulnerable. Uh-huh. right at, at at the root of it and so i I guess I don't know why why I'm saying this, but I, I just I want to I want to peel back like maybe the the language we use around um, or not even a language, but maybe the the challenge of trying to always appear strong when, mm-hmm. when we're not, and how do we have that conversation of I'm hurt or because you know your sister is strong, and mm-hmm. we have these people that we lean on for strength. But but they too need someone to uh, lean on, and um, and if you're that rock in the family, it's like, well, I don't want to lean on anybody because then they might think that I'm not as strong as as they thought. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, um, I think so much. I mean, what you the very last thing you spoke to sounded to me like uh, family roles that have either been assigned or that we have taken up for ourselves. Um, And that's one thing that I talk about with all of my clients pretty early on in session is um, what would you say your role was in your family? Or if you can think about um, 
you know, I'll give like a couple of examples or even like animals or something like that. Like if you, you know, if your little sister was the otter, uh, and your, you know, brother was the golden retriever, then what, what do you think you were? And that just gives me some insight into like how everybody functioned as a team or lack thereof in the family. Well, I was the mediator in my family. Anytime there was any trial. Yeah, I was too. Oh, wow. See, and, and hence, yeah. we're, you know, while we're in the work we're in. Same field. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was too. I, and I recall, I go back to that a lot now as I'm, um, as I continue to grow into my adulthood and grow into my own strength and my own understanding of who I am and, and who I've been designed to be, I go back to that a lot. Um, so for example, I lead a team. There are three people that I lead on this team. And if I could have it my way, I would be a visionary, like someone who comes up with ideas, who comes up with, um, you know, something that we're going to do. And I just want everybody on the team to do it. And I don't want to have to manage a thing. Like in my ideal world, I don't want to get into any kind of conflict ever. (laughs) Um, I will, but I am, I do not, I'm not somebody who really enjoys, I get a little bit shaky and, um, you know, stumble over my words a little bit when I'm in conflict, I'd rather avoid conflict, but being in the position that I am, the position that God has now put me in, I don't have any, um, I I don't have any say in what kind of, uh, leader that I am right now, like what kind of role that I have with these people. I now have to be their leader. Um, because they're looking to me to answer certain questions and to give direction and all of that. And it's very uncomfortable. And what I realized recently, because somebody spoke this to me, they, uh, this has always been very hard for me. I'm the kind of person that's like, I don't want to put anything else extra on your plate. Um, anything that comes up, let me know and I'll fix it. I'll solve it for you. Um, and this was weighing really heavy on me for a while. And someone, and I cannot remember who it was, spoke to me and said, when was the first time that you believed you have to do this all on your own? When was the first time that you realized that you're alone? And I thought about that and I thought, yeah, it's been my whole life. I've kind of been alone. I was the baby, baby, baby of the family um, because my sister's six years older, my brother's 10 years older. So I was in sixth grade when my sister went off to college, second grade when my brother went to college, right? So I was like actually physically kind of alone in the family, both parents worked and all that. Um, and my family, we had a lot of, um, we had a lot of stuff in my family, lots of, uh, fighting and things like that. And I was always, even as a little girl, kind of the one that, um, you know, that different members of my family kind of laid their head on my shoulder and sought advice and said, what do you think I should do? And, you know, things like that. So that's like speaking to the mediator thing. I was always the one that felt or believed whether I was put in that role by them or just assigned it to myself because it was a, it was a self-protection strategy that I wasn't aware of at the time. I was the one that became the glue for the family. So if somebody was upset with somebody else, I would go to the other person and say, um, I really think you guys just need to talk about this because you're believing something that I don't think is actually true on the other end, you know, and even still do that in my adulthood now. Um, so anyway, all of that is like, sometimes it can be so important to understand what the actual role is that you have in your family or what the like narrative of your family has been that you either assigned or that has actually been written for you. Um, because then when you're acting out or living out 
those roles, you know, day in and day out with the people you work with or the people you live with or are married to or whatever, um, you can see like, Oh, am I, am I stepping back into that role or am I living in, um, my true calling, my true worthiness given to me by God? Yeah. Because Uh, our our roles mm -hmm. change, right? It's like, like you said, you're, you're right now you're in a leadership role and, you know, so you're out front. Uh, but the, but the idea is that you are, are, you lead enough and, and far enough that somebody else then uh, takes the helm and you can fade back um, and, right. and not be in front. But, and so we recognize that we have to switch roles and our, and our roles depend on the, the, our environment and who we're with. Are, are there two people here? Are there 10 people? Right. Um, listening to you speak, I realize that uh, people who, are, uh, who or feel like mediators because uh, I very much uh, subscribe to your, you know, the mediator and also the visionary and mm. not wanting to be out front. That's why my, like, my face is not the logo of the <laughs> podcast. Like, I, I, you know, 20, 30, 50 years from now, I would, I would love for someone else to, to pick up the baton and, and keep it going. Yeah. But, um, mm-hmm. but I realize, like, I'm more comfortable in sets of threes when there's three people, because mm. then that puts me back in the mediator role. When it's just me and one other person, um, then I, I feel more pressure. I don't yeah. know what the pressure is, uh, but there's a pressure there. When But when there's three people, I go, I feel relaxed. Like I don't have to do anything, yeah. like relieved. Yeah. And I haven't gotten to the source of that, but it, it just... Yeah. It, listening to you speak, uh, it brought that up for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar in that. I'm much more comfortable in threes than I am in twos. And I discovered for myself, I don't know if it's the same for you, that the reason I'm uncomfortable with just me and one other person is because I believe that I have to perform and that, and, and I'm already like, if I, uh, I'm not really a, like, I don't lean towards depression. I lean towards anxiety. So I'm already a slightly anxious overthinking kind of person. Um, and if it's just me and one other person, I believe that I have to be like funny and, um, you know, have insightful things to say and, you know, be in that like comforting leadership kind of role with them. And if I'm not, or if I'm quiet, or if I'm just in a non-talkative mood that they're going to think something's wrong with me. Um, but when I have, when it's me and two other people, then they can bounce off each other. And I have more to kind of bounce off of more to play off of. And I'm not in that entertainment role all the time. Wow. That's what it is. There is a, right. There's a, <laughs> a, a feel a need to perform. And, um, yeah. and even when I'm aware of it, I, it's, it's a challenge for me to, um, to, to not, um, perform um, right. or feel uh, yeah. performative. Um, yeah. I, can, can we backtrack a little bit um, yes, to yes. The, the struggle with infidelity? Uh, was there a period of uh, where you felt lonely? Infidelity or infertility? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Not infidelity, infertility. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and I also want to say I realized that I did not answer your question about um, what it means to be strong and all of that. So we can go back to that, too, if you want. But specifically with infertility, did I ever feel lonely? Absolutely. Um, it's an extremely lonely situation for men and women. 
to walk through. I would say, especially women, because women are the one who get the baby showers with the, you know, tie the ribbon around the belly to see how big it is and things like that. So I think there's a lot more attention put on the woman when they get pregnant. And so therefore, when somebody is on a journey, that's just a different journey to make a family for their family. Um, they get almost like completely overlooked that they're, you know, and the perception is like, I'm less of a woman or, you know, people don't know how to talk to me uh, or people believe that I'm broken or that I made a mistake or something like that. Um, but I do remember the first time I realized, wow, this is lonely is, uh, I just had to go to all these doctor's appointments and there were so many appointments, but I was just going to them on my own. And I sat down in my doctor's chair and he said, um, so it's just you then no one else is, uh, is going to be supporting you today. And I remember looking at the empty chair next to me thinking it never even occurred to me that maybe I should need like support <laughs> it, during this meeting because I had been on my, and my husband is phenomenal. I mean, I truly believe I married the best man in the whole world. Um, and I'm sure if we got to know each other a little bit better, I could say that about you too, but my husband, like he is the best man in the whole world that I've ever met right now. And he went to as much as he possibly could. But, um, the struggle of infertility becomes such a daily, uh, such a monthly weekly, uh, thing that you have to like put all of your attention to because you have to track things on a daily, sometimes like multiple times a day basis. You have to track things weekly. You have to track things monthly and you're in and out of a doctor's office every single month during certain times of the month, um, that it gets to be where the woman really has to kind of figure out how to do it if, if they're going to do it, you know? Um, and the husband or the partner can't necessarily always be there with their work schedule because it's not their body. It's my body. You know, it's the female's body, the one who's trying to carry the child's body. Um, so yeah, I just remember that time looking at the chair next to me being like, yeah, I'm alone. I, it never even crossed my mind that maybe I, that, that, that should have, that that is as hard as it is to be all by myself in this for sure. Yeah. I, uh, and this is going to be a random question. Did you, either of you have to, did you change your diet or nutrition where there's certain foods you, you, you try? Cause, cause to me, when I think about, you know, infertility, like we, there's so much that goes into it and so much is unknown. Like you said, as to exactly why, uh, uh mm. you're unable to conceive, uh, mm. was, did you, did you try anything nutritionally? Yes. On either Sweet. part? probably everything that we could have tried, we did. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we tried like the very, um, whole, like whole 30 kind of diet, like whole foods only. And we tried the no sugar and no caffeine and no alcohol. And, you know, uh, I'm not a big sugar person anyway. I always say I have a salty tooth and I have a sweet tooth, but definitely took out all alcohol, definitely took out, you know, ever being around anyone who smokes, um, you know, sugar, even like sugar in like tomato soup jars, like jars, not tomato soup, like, um, pasta sauce, like making my own pasta sauce, because if you get it from a jar or anything from a can, it's like super sugary, all of that stuff. Um, yeah, we kind of tried a little bit of everything. It, we did, I did have surgery for endometriosis. I did have level three out of four endometriosis. 
Um, but the reason it's still kind of un, unexplained is um, usually after a woman gets that surgery, usually like the next couple of months they'll get pregnant if there's really nothing else wrong other than the endometriosis because it's all clear now. So they always say like after the surgery, after the amount of time, you need to like work at it right away. Um, because that's going to be, because it can grow back and that's going to be when you're most likely able to get pregnant. And we just still didn't, you know, um, even after that surgery and everything that we tried just kind of months would go by, this still isn't happening and everybody's just kind of scratching their head, you know? Yeah. I was, I was asking about the loneliness just because, uh, you know, I, the, the infertility rate's about 15%. So, mm. so many women, um, are struggling with this and so many couples and mm -hmm. you know a lot of them struggle with feeling like they're the only ones and because you see especially with instagram there's so many photos of uh, people having babies and pregnant and making an announcement kevin hart just announced his wife is pregnant mm -hmm. again mm -hmm. so i know it becomes a, it becomes a challenge to feel like everybody you know we kind of have that blanket thinking of everyone's having kids uh except me yeah and so I, I was just asking yep. you to share that to share that emotional part just so listeners out there who are struggling with it don't feel as lonely and know that there's so many, so many couples and so many people who are experiencing this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it is really hard. Um, and I think the hardest thing or the thing that leads to so much loneliness is, uh, we just don't really talk about it. And a lot of the reason why we don't talk about it, I think goes back to that whole strength thing. Um, you don't want to be seen as like the victim of your friend group or the broken one of your friend group, you know, and, and how many times can you bring this up before somebody's like, well, geez, just go adopt, you know, or, uh, geez, not, I mean, it's like, so you don't have kids, so you get to go on vacation your whole life. I mean, what's the problem with that? Um, so we, we certainly don't want to be seen as somebody who's like always got a problem, or I would say this is just generally how people kind of think. So we just stop talking about it. Um, and it's also so invasive. I mean, the stuff that we, that our bodies have to go through is extremely invasive and, uh, extremely medical and like kind of weird and gross, you know, and it's not easy conversation for people unless they've gone through it. I think the other thing is you really just, people just really can't, totally understand what it feels like unless they've gone through it, um, which is probably the same for anything, you know, but, um, one thing that I do say is if you are going through infertility, make sure that you are putting people in your life who are also struggling with infertility. So you're not the only person in your, in your life who's struggling, if that is the case. So like what helped me is I had a, a counselor at the time and I just kind of talked and cried about it with her in session. That was really good just to process and to have someone process through it with me. Then I also had a friend of mine who, um, was going through infertility and also wanting to adopt just like us going through it at the same time. And we would just sit down for coffee and talk about it together. And we weren't, it wasn't like one person was leading the other. We were just meeting each other at exactly the same place. And then the other person I had in my life, I really had like four very close, very important people in my life. The other person was somebody who struggled for four years to get pregnant. 
And she was a, a little bit older than me. So she was kind of like my leader. So I did everything she did. I went to her doctors. I read her books. I read, you know, I, I did everything she did. She was leading me. And it was, I wasn't supporting her at all. Uh, it was all her supporting me. So I had somebody who was supporting me, somebody who was completely parallel with me, and then a therapist. Um, and then I had, you know, one of my therapists who works with me. Um, who's just, a, she's just absolute gold. She would just check in with me every now, like I'm leading her and she would check in with me and literally hold space for whatever I was going through in that day. So, uh, even though it was a very lonely thing, I made sure that I gave myself opportunity to talk about it. So it wasn't just me by myself. Um, and that is extremely important. So if you are listening and you are going through infertility, you really should not be doing it on your own. It'll become too much for you to handle, um, in a healthy way. Uh, and what I mean by that is like in a healthy way so that your relationship with your partner is still healthy and your relationship towards your family is still healthy and you're not addicted, you know, outside addicted because you're trying to not, think or feel the things that you have to think or feel when you're going through infertility. So make sure you're putting a community around yourself to support you and lift you up when you need it. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing all that out. So what is the strategy for getting it into every church? Are you cold calling people? Are you you knocking on (laughs) church doors? Like, (laughs) how, how, how are you bringing mental wellness to every church? Uh, yeah. in, in the world? Well, it's going to be a very, very, very long process. So I'm not expecting that, you know, six months from now, it, there will be a counseling center in every church <laughs> in America. Um, it, because there's a whole lot of education and we call it psychoeducation that has to go into this. There's a whole lot of those like faith and mental wellness classes that need to be taught so that people are understanding a bit better what the Bible says and what it doesn't say about our mental health, you know? So there's a lot of that that goes into this. Um, but it's also like just, uh, starting with making relationships and partnerships so that, um, churches are already seeing that they, they know me, that they can trust me and that we are an expert, this little counseling center that we are an expert in this community. And so it's going to start like, um, kind of spider webbing out from there. So we are the experts in our little community here. Um, and it starts with literally like knocking on every door in our area of the churches who can support something like this. So I'm not actually talking about, you know, a hundred person churches where their entire staff might be like volunteer, um, or there's only one paid staff. Like that is not, that's not going to be, um, a community that can support something like this, but they can certainly partner with us or, maybe even go in with another church or something like that to have um, a clinical counseling center for their community, not necessarily in the walls of their own church, but still becoming a supporter or an ambassador of it. Um, but yes, it is literally um, like the knocking on doors, cold calling kind of thing, just building relationships with people. Um, right now, it's a lot of like, I will bring you coffee, uh, or your favorite lunch from your favorite restaurant for you to just spend a little bit of time with me and I'll share you, I'll share with you like how this came to be and what our model is and why it is the, like it's the 
probably most important next step that we as the church can take. Um, let me share it with you. I'll bring you lunch. Um, and if you can give me feedback, like red pen this, red pen this little pitch that I'm about to give you and tell me uh, why or why you wouldn't want to have this be a part of your church so that I can you know, see all your red pen marks and make this better. So I go at it like, uh, I, I want to pitch this to you because it's what our church needs. Um, and then I also, um, communicate like I could really use your edits so that I can make this better and make it something that, um, all people really do see as accessible. Alex, that sounds like I'm so inspired by this story. And as much as you're going to be following me, I'm also going to be following you in Mm. this journey. Where can people, is there anything that you haven't shared that you'd like to share with the listeners about this? Well, specifically with this model, what I'll say is, um, and this is kind of how it it came to be anyway. Um, Most churches, I think, um, how do I say this? Like, Churches now, I think, who who are starting to understand the importance of mental health um, and marriage counseling and things like that, a lot of what churches do now is they hire one um, like LPC or they'll hire like one counselor onto their church staff uh, because they want to have like the licensed counselor on their staff that if members of their church body, their church community um, have any issues, they can set up an appointment and talk with that one counselor. Uh, And that is fantastic if your church or if you hear about churches doing that, that is absolutely the right way to go. Um, But what tends to happen is, and and particularly if you're um, a part of a larger church, what tends to happen is they hire one person with the license, but the uh, caseload or the number of people who need help becomes so large that that one um, counselor on staff, what they tend to do is just refer out. Um, So they have that one meeting or those two meetings or whatever, but then ultimately what they're doing is becoming like a referral service. So they'll meet and kind of assess and then they'll say, well, there's a marriage therapist down the street. Why don't you give her a call? Or here's a list of three. Why don't you give them a call? So for a church that is in that kind of situation um, where they would be interested in hiring one counselor. What I say, or what our model is, is if you can hire one additional staff member, I can give you four or five or however many you need. Because the model is um, you're taking on one person kind of technically onto your staff who's going to have a heartbeat on your church and who can lead mental health trainings or professional uh, professional um, development classes for your staff, but who will be on staff and will have, you know, all of that, um, like focus on, on your staff and what you guys do for your community. And then there will be, um, contracted workers underneath them who will make what their clients pay in those sessions. So if you have, um, a situation where you can hire one more person, then I can give you four or five, and I, and I take all the liability um, because we have all the bylaws. We have the, you know, full-blown, super detailed manual. We basically give you this clinical counseling center for you, you to be able to care for your community in that way. But we take all, all the liability and even the, um, like, employee liability out of it so that you are free to still be the church while still offering this incredible service. 
I love it. Uh, you know, there's so many because there's so many churches that offer like premarital counseling and mm-hmm. um, and other you know mental pastoral health services, counseling. Uh, pastoral mm-hmm. counseling. And mm-hmm. I think that you know to to have like you said a licensed professionals uh, in there who are trained and because even if you're it's it's good to combine different modalities. It's like right. I train. You know, I used to just lift weights. And then I got into yoga and then I also got into Pilates and then I did some cross like, and you, you learn something from each one of them. And it's not about one being better than the other. It's about Mm. taking from each part and bringing it together and knowing how to bring that together so that uh, it's beneficial to the person who uh, is, who needs the help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And we, even with our, like with the research that I've done just, uh, based on surveys and things that I've sent out to our clients, our typical client, um, say that they have been in counseling with our therapist for six months or less, that they believe that they, um, have made progress towards reaching their goals and that they would refer us to a family member or other loved one. So uh, one thing that I also say is, you know, I hear all the time from pastors that they are trying the best that they can with the tools that they have to uh, meet with the members of their congregation and of their community who have mental health issues, um, but they don't feel totally equipped to um, actually see these people like make changes in their life. So they're meeting with people over coffee or over breakfast or in uh, you know, pastoral counseling or over a Bible study for months and months and months, sometimes years and years and years, not really seeing uh, lots of change happening. And pastors, you know, get really frustrated with that. And so one thing that I say is, gosh, I, you know, what's really cool about um, professional mental health counseling is our studies show that it takes about six months for people to uh, be in counseling and to see that they're me- they're meeting their goals. And not just that it's six months they're meeting their goals, that's all they can take and they're out, um, but they're actually saying this was so good for me that I would refer other people to this church to do counseling for me, whether I was a Christian or not. And that's a really big thing, too, that... Um, that p- I, our studies show from the surveys... And- sent out that the majority of our clients don't even go to our church. So that means people who have never stepped foot in a church, people who don't feel comfortable in a church, people who aren't Christians, people who've been hurt by the church, they're now given an opportunity to come be uh, receiving really good quality mental health care from inside the church. And that to me is, is huge. Alex, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast, for doing this episode. Plug all your things. Where can people find you? Where can people connect with you? I would say the best thing is on Instagram at Alexandra Thompson underscore LCSW because that's my personal account. So you'll really get to know my heart. Um, The Cumberland Counseling Instagram is at Cumberland Counseling. And then our website is cumberlandchurch.org slash counseling. And any one of those, you'll be able to really get a a good idea of who we are at our core. Thank you so much. And thank you so much listeners for listening in. Alex, I asked this of all my guests on the, on the episode. I feel like there's one person listening who may mm. be on the precipice of ending their life. 
Before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? I would say you are um, designed by the same designer who put the stars and the planet into the sky and created um, the Grand Canyon and the things that are in the ocean. And uh, if he did that, you are just as intricate, just as amazing, just as beautiful, and just as needed on this earth for us to have something else that is awe-inspiring. You are awe-inspiring. Um, so if you're in that situation where you want to end your life, remember that it is uh, there's an illness going on inside your body that's not a normal... It's it's typical that every now and then we'll get thoughts like that, but, but there is like a fever in your body that's leading you to have those thoughts. Um, so you have to remember that is an illness. So go to the doctor and talk about it to get your fever, so to speak, reduced. Um, go to a therapist, reach out right now. But remember that you are an intricate, incredibly beautiful, valuable member of this community in our world, and we need you. Alexandra Thompson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all for listening in. And remember, if you need one-on-one coaching, go to thrivewithleo.com, thrivewithleo.com, and we will talk to you soon.